Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. If you are under the age of 40, or even perhaps new to the holiness movement, you might not have ever heard the name Millard Downing. Millard Downing was a wonderful evangelist of probably over 50 years. He was straight, he was rigid, and he was an orator. This message is titled Wisdom, and I know you're going to enjoy it. Preached at the Midwest Purple Holiness Camp Meeting back in Anderson, Indiana in 1984. Greeting. My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into divers temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. To the third chapter of this same letter, continuing with verse 13, Who is a wise man, and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not, and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. And so you have been attending the Pilgrim Holiness Camp Meeting. When you return, it is likely that some of your neighbors will have missed you during these past days. And one of them may come around, so great is his curiosity, and question, where have you been? Be happy to tell that neighbor, I've been at the Holiness Camp Meeting. Now, he may step away from you a step or two, increasing the distance between the place where you stand and where he was standing, and look at you a bit narrowly and say, uh, Holiness, did you say? Yes, <laughs> I said holiness. Well, uh, you believe in this holiness? 
Oh, yes, thank God. I not only believe in the doctrine, I have the experience. And he may look around behind him to be sure that his route of escape's open in case of any emergency and then risk a further question. Uh, this uh, holiness. I I've heard of that. Uh, that makes you speak in unknown tongues, doesn't it? Tell him it does not. Only three places in all the Word of God when anybody spoke or understood languages not formally understood that I can find record of. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came the sound as of a rushing mighty wind from heaven, filled all the house where they were sitting, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And uh, man, devout man, devout Jewish man from every nation on earth were present when they heard of the extraordinary phenomenon that had accompanied the outpouring of the Spirit. And every man heard the message of that notable Pentecost day in his own language. No jargon there, no peeping and muttering, no unknown babblings, no unknown tongues. Seventeen different linguistic groups are specified among those who heard each in his own language. Peter was called over to the house of Cornelius. Cornelius was a centurion. Soldiers from every province of the Roman Empire were a part of his band. They spoke different languages, like one of their great problems was understanding each other. But when Peter stood up and preached, the Holy Ghost fell upon every one of them who was already a believer. And Peter, testifying about it later at the church council, declared they were all by faith. Their hearts were purified, just like it happened to those of us who were Jews on the day of Pentecost. And there they spoke in languages so that the message and the testimony could be understood. Either they spoke in different languages than they had formerly known, or they understood a language that they had never before learned. However it was, there was a miracle, there was a gift of languages or the understanding of languages there. Only other place I find that occurred was when Paul stopped by Ephesus. He found a dozen men who had known only the baptism of John, didn't know about the Holy Ghost or the possibility of being purged by his power or filled with his presence. Paul gave them some information on the subject and had a dozen at the mourner's bench and they all got sanctified. And they were able to speak and to understand each other, though they came from different linguistic groups. Anything else I read on the subject so prevalently considered and so dangerously twisted, bringing about the awful deception of the charismatic movement today, over there at the church at Corinth where Paul was laying down some rules for conduct in the church services, where they didn't have time for a man to get up and speak in his own language if most of the people in the congregation couldn't understand what he was saying unless someone who understood all the languages were there to interpret. 
Now, unknown tongues recommended there, the very contrary is there suggested. So please tell them. True scriptural holiness has no part in and nothing to do with the prevalent heresy of babbling in unknown tongues. We're not tongues folk here. Make that very clear. Well, the fellow says, if you do not babble in unknown tongues, uh, you, you do handle snakes, do you not? Thank God we do not. <laughs> I don't know that I'm abnormally cowardly in some realms, but I'll admit being a bit unusual when it comes to the fear of serpents. They tell me that the fear of serpents is not inherited. It must be acquired. I can accept that because I remember the day I acquired mine. My Quaker mother moved sedately through her 80 years of life here on this planet without uh, general emotional excesses. If everything went to her liking, she did not appear to un be unduly exuberant. If everything went dead wrong, she did not appear to be unduly depressed. She traveled through every day on an even keel, but there was one exception that I remember, and I never recovered from the shock of that moment. My daddy and mother were looking for the mushrooms that grew up the spring branch that came down to this lady hollow in the sheep pastures at the back of our farm near the headwaters of the Mad River in western Ohio. I was a toddler that day, poking around along the little stream some rods from where they searched for the mushrooms. And in their searchings, they kicked up a big serpent. I never recall seeing one that looked as big as he did that day. That mean snake got his head up off the ground about so high and came slithering almost like a streak of lightning from the place where they scared him out right toward the place where I was standing. And for one time in all her life, my Quaker mother went to pieces. She let out an unearthly, blood-curdling scream that did something to me that I have never recovered from to this hour. And since that awful moment, if I meet a serpent the size of a shoestring, I almost jump out of my shoes. I'd rather meet the biggest cow's husband in the state of Indiana out in the midst of a 40-acre field and take a chance of getting a tail hold on the old boy and propelling him around someplace to where I could climb out from under his growing hoops and horns up a tree or over a fence than I would to have to pick up a serpent the size of an earthworm. So please tell them we're not snake anglers. If I had to prove the reality of my sanctification by handling serpents, I wouldn't have mine proved yet. <laughs> the fellow said, well, if you don't uh, babble in tongues and you don't handle snakes, you are those holy rollers, are you? We are not. I've been around holiness movement a large proportion of my time since my mother carried me there when I was a few days of age. And the crowd that I hobnob with do not get down and roll around on the floor or slither around under the benches like serpents so that the women have to be covered up with a blanket to maintain some vestige of modesty in the assembly. 
If I were to fall off this platform and roll around on the carpet here this morning in my attempts to deliver this message, be assured it's not part of the prepared program. It's not the ordinary thing. It would be purely accidental. We are not holy rollers. Oh, indeed, we get blessed on occasion. We ought to do that. And really, the world shouldn't think that unusual for us to demonstrate our enthusiasm about the fact that our sins are forgiven, our hearts made pure. We can read our titles clear to a mansion in the sky. They ought to allow that without any surprise. For they'll go down to the stuffy gymnasium and sit there on a chicken roost along the wall to watch some scripping garbed in his underwear as he dribbles a bloated pigskin across a hardwood floor and pushes it through a metal hoop on the wall. And while the near-nude cheerleaders put on a burlesque show, they'll teeter precariously there on the bleachers and shout, Yay, team! Fight! 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 <laughs> Just because some fellow put a bloated pigskin through a hoop on the wall. Now, I never saw much to get excited about there. They'll go down to the lighted ballpark at night and they'll turn up the public address system so the whole end of the city is addressed and disturbed, maybe to a late hour. You hear them down there, strike one, bow one. And then you hear something and some fellow with a club in his hand has hit a little spheroid and it's gone out there for far above the wildest gesticulation of the furthest outfielder and crack crashed down someplace beyond the fence or up in the bleachers and some fella jogs around over four little mats on the ground and they yell and hoop and squall and holler till they disturb a whole community and nobody complains about it or thinks it unusual. And yet some time ago we were in a little holiness church on a back street and somebody got blessed and shouted the high-sounding praises of God for a moment and they called the police in on us. Same town where the ball game had been disturbing the whole neighborhood way into the night. Well, I don't understand them, and I guess they don't understand us. But we do praise the Lord on occasion. The joy of the Lord is the strength of his people, and the demonstration of that joy, a means to producing hunger and thirst for righteousness in the joyless hearts of a needy world. But we are not holy rollers. Well, it says, well, if you... Don't babble in unknown tongues and you don't handle snakes and you're not holy rollers. What is this holiness? Friend, that's the point where you want to come up a loaded. Prepared with a good scriptural definition for the scriptural experience of a scriptural holiness. You say, well, where would I find a ready-made definition? I read it to you this morning. And if you'll think with me for a moment, you will remember from now on. For if I were to ask you, where is the golden text of the Bible? Many of you would say, Preacher, I know. John 3.16, and you'd quote it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, the scriptural definition for scriptural holiness is not John 3.16, but James 3.17. The wisdom that is from above is first pure. Then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Ordinarily, we talk in terms of scriptural holiness or entire sanctification or perfect love or heart purity. 
And all of these terms have their scriptural basis and are sound and proper to be used. But as far as I can ascertain, the wisdom that is from above is just as good a term for the experience as any other. Now, this wisdom that is from above is more than an intellectual capacity for the obtaining and making use of knowledge. This wisdom that is from above is a spiritual experience, and it is first pure. Whatever other sidelines we may consider, whatever other byproduct benefits we may observe, whatever other emphases may be on our preaching of scriptural holiness, we ought always to remember this wisdom that is from above is first. It is primarily, it is essentially purity of heart. No one of us was born with a pure heart. That carnal mind which is enmity against God, not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be, was in your heart and in mine at birth. But the Lord has provided the wisdom that is from above, so that when that Christian believer whose sins are all forgiven and uh, who is pardoned and justified and adopted into God's family and witnessed to by his spirit that he is a child of God with newness of spiritual life, comes to the place of an utter abandonment of self to God in consecration, complete dedication without reservation, self-reckoned death to everything other than the will of God for himself, but likely a self-reckoned alertness and aliveness to God and to his purposes invites the Holy Spirit, third person of the adorable Trinity, to come to his heart and purge out the last vestige of sin's inherited pollution. That individual is then and not until then sanctified holy, for the Holy Spirit will come and cleanse from the heart that nature of sin inherited. And the heart will by entire sanctification be rendered pure. Friend, do you have a pure heart this morning? Has that old root of bitterness been removed? That sin that doth so easily beset, has it been taken away? Is all that enmity against God, all that which is not subject to his law, neither indeed can be, removed from your heart this morning? Do you have a pure heart? Remember, Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Dear friend, if your heart is not pure, you lack the wisdom and may I suggest to you this wisdom is absolutely essential for every Christian believer if we are to hold up under pressure when the unexpected provocation or temptation suddenly arises where otherwise there would be a breakdown in our experience. This wisdom is essential in order that we properly represent the Jesus Christ whose name we have taken, in order that we be prepared for admittance the realms of eternal glory, that we may be with him where he is, that we may behold his glory. For it's only the pure in heart who shall see God in that blessed and eternal relationship. If you lack the purity of heart, friend, you lack the wisdom. Purity of heart is always exhibited in a peaceable spirit. Years ago, that master of pulpiteer, Paul Stromberg Reese, told me of the sanctification of the father and mother of Mrs. Haldor Lillinus. Those of you acquainted with gospel music are aware of the fact that Haldor and Bertha Lillinus 
are the compilers of many of the gospel songs that we use today. There was a time before her marriage and in her girlhood when Bertha Lillinus was little Bertha Wilson. Her daddy, Charlie Wilson, was a cropper down south. Charlie Wilson had a wife, two children, a white mule, and a two-wheeled mule cart. Evangelistic campaign was scheduled for one of the churches of the community. And so Charlie loaded his wife and the two children on the mule cart and drove away to the first service of the big meeting. The young evangelist engaged a speaker for the occasion, stood up, and in the first service preached very tenderly and sweetly a message on perfect love. We've already stated perfect love, another term for scriptural holiness or this wisdom that is from above. Charlie Wilson observed during the course of the service that the old fellows who sat over in the amen corner and ruled the roost around that particular church became exceeding restless during the course of the message. So Charlie hung around for a while after the service had closed to see what might occur. His waiting was rewarded. For as he looked and listened, he observed the old fellows as they moved out of the amen corner and surrounded the young evangelist and said, Now, looky here, young fella. Some things you better get straight here right at the beginning of this meeting. It so happens this is not one of your holiness churches. And we don't stand for that perfect love business preached around here. Now, we've invited you to come and preach for us for a couple of weeks. Fixed up a place for you to stay and planned to give you some vittles. Maybe if we kind of like the way you do it, there might be a little offering at the end of the meeting. But understand this, no more of this perfect love business preached in this church. Understand? Young evangelist looked at them, smiled, never said a word. Picked up his Bible, tucked it under his arm, and walked out of the church to his place of entertainment. On the way home that night, Charlie was driving a white mule. He nudged his wife as she sat beside him on the seat of the mule cart and said, we'll go back to the big meeting tomorrow night. Going to be some fireworks. Did you mark it down? Just the way the young preacher looked at those old boys when they told him what he couldn't preach in their church, I have no idea that he plans to pay any attention to what they've told him as far as to what he preaches. But the young preacher doesn't know those old roosters like I do. They're rough customers. Every preacher they've ever had over at that church, they put right under their thumbs. They've told him what to preach and what not to preach and what to do and what not to do. But I have a feeling they've met their match in the young preacher. If you notice, the boy was a pretty slick-tongued talker. I have an idea he'll fry those old boys down in their own fat tomorrow night, and they've had it coming for years, and I want to be there when they catch it. <laughs> so Charlie was there for the second service. The young evangelist stepped to the pulpit stand, and a second time very tenderly and sweetly, preached a message on perfect love. The old fellows in the amen corner were more than restless now. They were squirming around on the seat. They could hardly wait till the sermon was done. Charlie, standing by to observe, saw them literally swarm that young preacher. They said, look here, young fella. We must not have been able to get it through your thick skull last night that this isn't one of your holiness churches. And we told you we wouldn't have this perfect love business preached around here. Now, we hold the deed to this property. And uh, 
It seems important even in these days who holds the deed to property. We're giving you one more chance. One more peep out of you about this perfect love and you're gone, understand? You're gone. We'll turn out the lights. We'll bar the doors. There'll be no place for you to preach. There'll be no place for you to stay. There won't be any victuals for you to eat and there won't be any offering either. Now do you guess? Young evangelist looked at them, gave them a sweet smile, never said a word, picked up his Bible, tucked it under his arm, and walked out to his place of entertainment. Charlie, driving the white mule home that night, nudged his wife. He said, uh, we'll go back to the big meeting tomorrow night. It'll be the last night of the meeting. He said, you mark it. So the young preacher knows now what I've known all the time, those old codgers mean business. They'll put the skids out of him and they'll close the meeting on him. And since he knows that, he has one more shot at them. He'll skin those old boys. He'll rub salt in their carcasses. He'll hang their hides on the fence and shoot them full of holes. And they've had it coming for years and he's just a boy who can get it said like it ought to be said and I want to be there when he gets it said. I wouldn't miss the last meeting tomorrow night for anything. So Charlie was there. And the third time, the young evangelist stood up and very tenderly and sweetly <laughs> preached a message on perfect love. The old fellow's name and corner were clacking their dentures. They were hot under the collar. They were red behind the ears. They were clinching and unclinching their fists. They were wiggling their toes inside their shoes. They could hardly wait for him to quit so they could get up and announce they held the deed to the property. And they wouldn't stand this sort of perfect love business preached in this building. And this wasn't anybody's hole in the church. They'd given the fellow a fair warning. He hadn't paid any attention to them. And so the meeting was closed. They could hardly wait to announce that. But uh, the young evangelist anticipating their maneuver quickly he brought his message to a close stepped briskly around the pulpit stand and with a smile still on his face and with a loving kind gesture that embraced everyone including the old fellow seething in the amen corner he said for reasons that we need not discuss it seems best that the services scheduled for the two weeks in this particular church terminate with the service of tonight but the Lord in his providence has opened up the other church across the way. And the Lord willing, the services scheduled for this community will continue there tomorrow night and throughout the remainder of the two weeks. And we are praying that the Lord will give us a mighty Holy Ghost revival that will benefit every church and every individual in the entire vicinity. And with a smile still on his face, the young evangelist picked up his Bible and tucked it under his arm and walked down that aisle and out of that church for the last time. Charlie, driving the white mule home that night, nudged his wife. He said, you know, the young preacher had more sense than I gave him credit for. He knew better than to unload on those old boys on their own territory. But you wait till tomorrow night when he gets over there in that hole in his church. Why, the only decent support the boy's had for his ministry since he's been in this neighborhood has been from those holiness people over there that believe like he believes. Now, tomorrow night, when he gets on his own territory among his own kind of people, believe you me, he'll read the pedigree of those scoundrels, and when he gets it read, everybody will know about them, and like I say, they've had it coming for years, and he's just the boy who can get it told, I wouldn't miss the first service tomorrow night in the other church. You wait, we'll hear something. 
So Charlie had his white mule hitched to the hitching rack out behind the other church across the way the next night, and it looked like about everybody else came to see what was going to happen. Now, the young evangelist was on his own territory. He was among his own type of people. He stepped up to that pulpit stand. He laid his Bible open, and very tenderly and sweetly, with no reference to any problems that he'd ever had anywhere, if he'd ever had any, preached a fourth message on perfect love. Charlie drove the white mule home that night, but he had nothing to say. <laughs> he let Mrs. Wilson and the children off at the house. And while she was putting the babies to bed, he put the white mule away in the stable. And by the time Charlie got back to the kitchen, his wife was down by the old split-bottom rocker there in the kitchen crying, Oh, God! Give me the perfect love that the young preacher has. She said nothing about the kind of love that he'd preached about or the doctrine that he had set forth, but she was praying for the experience that he'd put on exhibition. And about the time Charlie got in, she was coming through. And she said, Charlie, sing something! And poor old Charlie, he stood right there inside the kitchen door on one foot a while and then on the other, and wrung his hands for a bit, and then, trying to rise to the occasion, heisted the tune, perhaps far better than he realized and more appropriate than he thought. On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. And while Charlie was singing, his wife crossed over, and she said, Charlie, don't you want the perfect love that the young preacher has? And Charlie Wilson figured that to work a white mule and properly rear his family and be a sharecropper down south, he needed that type of perfect love. And Paul Reese told me that was the night when both the father and the mother of Mrs. Howder Lillinus were gloriously sanctified. Are you a peaceable sort of a somebody? Maybe I ought to ask your wife or your husband or your children. Maybe I should ask somebody else on the church board. Maybe I ought to ask uh, the folk from the church where you used to go. Maybe I should ask the neighbor over the lion fence or that woman down the street whose chicken scratched in your tomato patch or whose children hit your children over the head with a ball bat. Dear friend, the doctrine has been clearly preached across the years in Indiana. Not everyone has subscribed to the doctrine nor seemed interested in seeking the experience. I wonder, could it be that because all too often while we preached about the purity of heart, we have failed to keep on exhibition the peaceable spirit? Dear friend, if we lack the peaceable spirit, whatever we preach or profess, dear friend, we lack the wisdom. For the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, and it's gentle. Did you think it was awful chilly all spring? Maybe it's just because we'd spent the winter in the tropics on the mission field. But when Sister Don and I came back north about the middle of March, we just felt like we couldn't get warm till... Well, a little while before we came to camp meeting here, seemed so chilly and damp and rainy all spring. 
Remember one of those chilly, damp, rainy mornings? You were sort of shivering anyhow, and somebody came in and left the door ajar. And you shouted, Shut that door! Was you raised in a barn? And the dog broke out the back door, and the cat went up the curtain, and the canary bird beat his feathers out against the side of the cage, and the children ran under the bed, and the neighbors hung their necks out of the window and nudged each other and said, that's one of the holiness people you hear testifying now. Whatever that explosion was over at your house that morning, it was not an exhibition of the gentleness. And dear friend, if we lack the gentleness, we lack the wisdom. And that not only goes to for the laity, that goes for those of us who are holiness preachers. Certainly we're called to reprove and to rebuke and to warn, but to do it with all long-suffering and doctrine. Surely we're called to hew to the lion and sound the trumpet when we see the danger coming, and yet the minister must be gentle. He must not strive. We lack the wisdom. For the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, it's gentle, and it is easy to be entreated, really not hard to get along with. Where there is no compromise of biblical principle involved, we don't always have to have the last word or have everything just our way. Did you know that there are occasions when compromise is not a dirty word? I repeat, where there's no real scriptural principle involved, we can give a bit. We can be charitable. No place for tolerance of evil or compromise of the principles of God's word, but on lesser points, there is a place for a Christian tolerance. I've heard this story in various versions. It seemed to me that it came more directly and uh, more clearly through dear old Brother Rice than anybody else that I ever heard relate it. Old Brother Rice was custodian at the Bible College when I was a student there. I was his assistant. His Brother Rice and I worked day after day cleaning the soot out of the furnace pipes and carrying the girls' heavy trunks clear up to the dorm floor. They'd been picked up down at the depot and doing other things that school custodians and their assistants do. He was continually pouring out upon me a line of sage wisdom rising from years of experience from having walked with the Lord. Old Brother Rice had lived long, he'd observed much, and he had special ability in conveying his thoughts. Seemed this may have occurred in the community where he'd lived. Back there those years ago, a young farmer was about to negotiate for the purchase of a farm. Just before he signed the dotted line, the honest realtor said, young man, I feel like before we close these deal, this deal, there's something I ought to tell you. You're buying this farm cheap. The young man said, I thought the price was right. The reason I'm buying it. He said, there's a reason for the low price. Everybody around this community knows that trouble goes with this land. Some years ago, the old man who owned this particular farm that you're considering built a line fence 
a fence that extends all along that line that separates this farm from the farm adjoining. The old farmer who lives on the other side of that line fence was never satisfied with its position. Through the years, there has developed a feud between the families. Lots of bad blood, lots of trouble. It's become the scandal of the neighborhood. The old man that owned this land has passed on. This farm's for sale. But the other old man who was a part of the feud is still very much alive. He's living over there just beyond that line fence. Anybody that buys this land is bound to have trouble with the old fella. Well, the young farmer said, if that's the only problem, I don't anticipate trouble with anybody. Let's go on with the deal. He'd almost forgotten the warning. Back in those days when that was the mode of freight transportation, he backed with his team of horses his wagon up to the front porch. He was unloading his furniture. He noticed... Uh, Sort of a disreputable-looking old character comes stalking across the field, stand narrowly observing him with a hangdog expression on his countenance. As soon as he could set down his piece of furniture, the young man stepped over at the edge of the porch and extended the glad hand and said, How do you do, sir? Uh, my name is. I've just bought this farm here, just moving in today. Well, fellow said, I'm your neighbor. I live on the place across the line fence. Well... Young man said, mighty nice of you to take time out to come over and welcome me to the community so soon, neighbor. Happy to meet you. You may not be so happy when you find out what it come about. Oh, is there trouble? Trouble? I guess there's been trouble all these years. Uh, would you care to tell me about it? What a come for? Years ago, old man owned this sheriff farm, put up a line fence between us. He sat that line fence a foot over on my ground. And all these years, he's been farming that foot of my ground all up and down that line and taking the crops off of it. And I come over here to find out what you're going to do about it. Well, young man said that's certainly unfortunate. I'm sorry to hear about this. I noticed uh, when I inspected the place, that old fence is in pretty bad shape. Tell you what I'll do, neighbor. If you'll give me a little time to get settled in here, I'll cut and cure the best posts that this farm affords. I'll buy the best woven fence that I can find, the best barb, and I'll build the... You don't cut that fence! Oh, I beg your pardon, sir. I, I, I shouldn't have been so bold, so impetuous. I, please forgive me. I, I should have said if, uh, with your permission, and if it were perfectly uh, suitable to you, and if we could make the arrangements so we'd both be satisfied, uh, maybe you'd care to hear me out on my proposition. Uh, now, if it's all right with you, you know, if you're perfectly satisfied, <laughs> if, if you were in a wholehearted agreement, as I was stating, I'd be willing to erect the best fence I know how to build. And let's see, you say this fence has been uh, set over a foot too far your way, thus leaving a full foot of your land over in the field on this particular farm all these years. And what is it? Uh, supposing uh, when I erect the new fence, I move it uh, three feet this way, thus uh, leaving to you the foot of land, the use of which you've lost through the years, and granting you the use of a couple of feet off of this farm all along the line to sort of make up for your loss through the years. <laughs> what did you say? And the young man repeated his 
very generous proposition. The old farmer dropped his head like he'd been smitten with a stone. He stumbled away across the field, climbed the rickety old fence, and was lost to sight. Young farmer was busy. Did you ever move? I know the preachers here have. Awful job to move. You know, a fellow always thinks he'll do better next time. So you start away early with the packing. And you try to get everything sorted out in its proper category. And then label all the barrels and all the boxes and all the bundles and all the crates and all of whatever else you can gather up to stick it in. And then when you get there, you can't find the right box or barrel. The young man finally managed to find the kitchen range and some sections of stovepipe, and he got the stove up. And finally, they unearthed the cooking utensils and a little food, and he got the family fed. And then they found some bedsteads and the slats and the mattresses and the springs and some bedding. And it was late when he got the family bedded down. He was dog-tired. And about the crack of dawn next morning, when he was sleeping the best, he heard an unearthly ruckus down at his back door. And still about half asleep, he got up and buckling the gallus on his bib overalls, he stumbled down the back stairs, rubbing sleep from his eyes and got the door open and looked out into the gray dawn and there by his back porch stood the old farmer who had so rudely accosted him the day before. And the old fellow said, uh, 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 come over this morning to, uh, to ask you if you'd come over that again you said yesterday about the fence. And the young farmer said, neighbor, if I can think straight this early in the morning, seems to me I promised to build a new fence the best I could build, and that is, of course, with your permission, and uh, set it over three feet my way from where the fence now stands. You understand that gives you a full yard of soil all along the line that uh, you haven't been farming before. That's what you said. Couldn't sleep much all night for thinking about it. Never met a fellow like you before. I wonder if you'd tell me what makes you so different. Young farmer said, neighbor, I'm a Christian. That in the whole story, I'm a holiness man. And since we're to live here as neighbors, we just as well understand each other at the very outset. I'd rather have you maintain confidence in the Jesus Christ that I represent and the holiness that I profess than have some trouble about where we set a fence and then have you wonder about me when you see me driving off to prayer meeting on Wednesday night or hear that I've taken 10 days off during the summer to go to holiness camp meeting. And old Brother Rice told me that that young sanctified farmer had the privilege of praying that rough, notorious old customer through to a glorious experience in salvation right there by his back porch that early spring morning. I wonder what you would have done. I'm sorry to confess I do not have to wonder what some leaders in the holiness movement would have done. But then they're not here, so let's talk about us. What would you have done? You'd have said, well, there are legal rights. And after all, precedents do have to be set. 
I would have showed that old fellow where to head in right in the beginning. We would have summoned, I would have summoned the county surveyor. I would have found out where that line was to have been drawn. And then, believe you me, I'd have got the best lawyer in three counties, then I'd have fought him to the last ditch. And we'd have set that fence where it belonged, and I'd have showed him right at the outset. Maybe so. But I wonder if we'd have won him to Jesus that way. Oh, dear friend, if you do not have a spirit that's easy to be entreated, if I do not have that spirit, we lack the wisdom. For the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, it is gentle. It's easy to be entreated, and it's just full of mercy. We touched that in a farmer service Sunday morning, I think it was. I have wondered these days just how merciful we holiness folk are. Somebody stumbles. We're done with him. Somebody falls. It becomes the choice morsel for us to roll off our tongues when we get together at camp meeting or convention or wherever else we see the other preachers or the other folk of the holiness movement. Did you hear? I'm not surprised. Dear friends, suffice it to say, if we lack a spirit which freely forgives, a spirit which labors to lift the fallen, if we lack the spirit which makes every attempt to restore the alienated, we lack the wisdom. And may we ever remember forgiveness is offered by the Lord only to the forgiving. And mercy is proffered only to the merciful. And who knows but that one of us may need some mercy before we finally get home. Oh, dear friend, if we lack the merciful spirit in all of our rugged, all of our unswerving, unbending, uncompromising refusal to drift. And I'm not advocating the drift. I believe you know that. And I'm not talking about sin that somebody's trying to cover and live on in. But where there can be reconciliation, where there can be restoration, where the fallen can be lifted and is willing to be lifted and willing to be honest and acknowledge the fault and the fall and the failure and repent. If we lack the merciful spirit, I fear, dear friends, we lack the wisdom. For the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceful. It is gentle. It is easy to be entreated. It's just full of mercy and full of good fruits. I would like to have an hour and 60 minutes to preach to you on the fruit of the Spirit. I won't dare begin. Let's just enumerate them. Now the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering. And here it is again. It's gentleness and goodness and faith and meekness and temperance. If we lack the sweet fruit of the Spirit, we lack the wisdom. For the wisdom that is from above is full of good fruits, and it's without partiality. Dear friend, if we have a spirit that's continually looking for some difference, 
so we can immediately, rigidly line up on a side and champion the cause against somebody else. We lack the wisdom. If there's something in us that doesn't want to share the benefits of the gospel and do everything possible to bring in and to bring to salvation the fellow from the other side of the tracks, those whose cultural differences would naturally bring division, those whose background, social strata, does not measure to that which we have maintained, you know, my little grandchildren have to go to Sunday school with those urchins. My dear little grandchildren have to go to vacation Bible school with those little dirty children, and we look at them and we sniff of them. We say they ought to have missions for that kind. We're nice people here. Remember the Lord said... Uh, other sheep have I. They're not of this fold. Them also I must bring. You know, holiness, among other things, is the great leveler. It reaches up onto the pedestal and brings the self-exalted highbrow down to a level with other people. Such men stoop and bow to lift others. I'm not talking about compromising with sin or going to down to their level of living. I'm talking about cultural differences in social strata. And thank God that same holiness can lift the low, the rude, the uncouth, the vulgar, up to a level of purity of life and heart and put on them a polish that makes them fit children of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I appreciate scriptural holiness for that. If there's a partiality against someone because the color of his skin is different than yours, I'm not suggesting intermarriage between the races. I think, generally speaking, it would be better if that were not engaged in. But I'm talking about a partiality that would keep us from going all out to love and to exhibit love to any man anywhere, regardless of his complexion, and do everything possible to work out his salvation. I guess I've eaten and eaten with relish some words that I one time remember having said. Preaching along this very line, I think I recall having said one time, that though I, I don't think it's best for the races to intermarry generally, that I would not prepare, prefer to have one of a different color going along pulling on my coattail and calling me granddaddy. But that situation has changed too. Now, none of our children have married outside their race. I do not know that any of our grandchildren have in their pedigree anything other than Caucasian blood. But uh, you see, we've been devoting part of our winters for several years to work on the mission fields. And our older son and his wife and our four, four of our grandchildren are there today. And we naturally spend all the time we can with them. 
And the compound there at High Rock Grand Bahama is one of the most beautiful playgrounds on all the island because the missionaries there before and the ones there now continue to improve and beautify it. They've cleared away the coral and they've leveled the rough places and they've seeded the grass and there's a beautiful campus there. And so as uh, through the winter I find time to work in the gardens and work on the buildings and labor on the campus between services. I have many wonderful little friends. Their hair is more curly than most of yours, and their skin's much darker than mine, but I have no better friends. I'm down there pieing a tomato plant, and out of the bush that borders the campus, I hear in the accent of the island, Grandaddy, Grandaddy. They think that's my name for they play with my grandchildren. And uh, those grandchildren call me granddaddy. And uh, it's no problem for me when those little toddlers want to crawl up on my lap along with the fair-haired children there that are my own grandchildren. My heart warms with love for them, a love to which they so readily and fully respond. And the other ones that are bigger that come to play with the older grandchildren, there may be a dozen, 15 of them running all over the campus, having the time of their lives right around the tomato plants and in and out among the peppers and the cucumbers that I'm trying to raise. But after all, the most important crop is not what we raise in the gardens. It's the ones we'll get into the eternal garner. Those that are too big to sit on my lap, granddaddy, take me right in your wheelbarrow. And I do. And then they come to the service and listen to me preach and bow at the altar when I make an altar call. And I don't have a bit of trouble about that. At first it amused me. Now I love it. Granddaddy. <laughs> oh, hallelujah. One of the most precious titles that I have in the accent of the Little Islanders. If you'd have a problem about that because the difference in the color of skin, friend, I'm afraid you lack the wisdom. For the wisdom that is from above is without partiality. And there's no hypocrisy there either. That wisdom does not attempt to pose as more spiritual than it knows itself to be. That wisdom does not try to cover up for some hidden sin. That wisdom does not refuse to confess the fault and make the adjustment. That wisdom does not compass land and sea to make one proselyte and then make him twofold more the child of hell than he was before. That wisdom does not stand into the entering into the kingdom of God, refusing to enter in fully and hindering others who might otherwise enter in. That wisdom does not make clean the outside of the cup and the platter and leave the interior full of all manner of extortion and excess. That wisdom does not beautify and whiten the outside of the sepulchers while within they're left full of dead men's bones. That wisdom does not devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long pious prayers and put on high-sounding testimonies. That wisdom does not piously count and tie the mint leaves while it forsakes and uh, omits the weightier matters of the law, such as real justice and mercy and true faithfulness, for that wisdom is without partiality. The definition of scriptural holiness you have the experience? Not unless your life measures to the standard set by the definition. 
Are you enjoying the wisdom this morning? It's essential. If you'd represent the Lord as he deserves to be represented by us here in this present world, if you would avoid the breakdowns under crisis, it would spoil everything in your testimony. If you would eventually be with him where he is to behold his glory, dear friend, you must have the wisdom. And everybody here this morning either has it or lacks it. How did you make out in our measurements today? Is your heart pure? A clear experience in entire sanctification. Are you a peaceable sort of somebody? Now, that wasn't you that said, Shut that door! Was it? Easy to be entreated? Really not hard to get along with? Standing firmly for what must be stood for? But where there's no matter of biblical principle involved, willing to give? Let the other man talk. Let him have his way sometimes, cheerfully, graciously. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, not to forget that merciful spirit. No partiality, no hypocrisy. Dear friend, if you lack the wisdom, you must have it. If you would glorify God here and now and be with him where he is there and then, and I read from the first chapter of James at the very outset of our study on purpose. For there the Lord proffers one of the great promises of his word. If any man among you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. Might sound like sometimes we holiness preachers scold you a little. The Lord said he won't even do that. You lack the wisdom, come down and ask for it. He won't upbraid you. He won't scold you. He'll just give you a liberal supply. Best proposition in town this morning, or in the country either. Measured and found short. We have a full quarter of an hour before dinner time. That'd be time enough for you to come and acknowledge the lack and ask the Lord for the wisdom. He'd be delighted to sanctify you this morning. As we rise, who'll lead the way? How many will come? Let's see. Let the Lord have his way. Ask him now. Don't expect to be scolded for your lack. Benefit by his promise. Wisdom. I don't want to take for granted the heritage of holiness that has been passed on. I don't want to lose the fire. Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Interchurch Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA. Oh